0: There's a very logical explanation for all this. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next
1: mystery. Blasted meddling kids. we go!
0: Hello again, everyone. It was a nice break, but I'm happy to be back with new episodes. This week, I had the chance to chat with James Gelsey, author of about 45 to 50 Scooby-Doo Scholastic chapter books from 1998 to around 2007. It's always been a goal to have interviews for not only the Scooby TV series and movies, but also other media as well, and I'm very excited to get into that a bit with James in this episode. Hope you enjoy listening! James, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Alexa. How are you today?
0: I'm good. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out.
0: Of course. And if you're up for it, I'd like to start off with a quick three-question Scooby-Doo-related trivia game.
1: Uh Uh-oh. Okay.
0: (laughs) So first question, can you name three classic Scooby-Doo villains?
1: Three classic Scooby-Doo villains. Um. Yeah. Let's see here. So we have um the creeper, the creeper guy. Um. We got the robot thing, and we have a witch doctor. Those are pretty classic.
0: Definitely, those are all three classic villains. <laughs> and question two: What is Scooby's full name?
1: Oh, Scooby's first. Uh, for his full name is Scoobert. His real name is Scoobert.
0: That is correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And last question for the trivia. Can you give the last names of all the members of the Scooby gang?
1: Well, you have um, Shaggy, who's Norval Rogers. And you have Daphne Blake. And you got Fred Jones and Velma Dinkley.
0: Perfect. Three for three. Did I pass? Yes. Yes, you did.
1: It's been a while since I've reached back to get that information out of my brain. So I'm surprised (laughs) it was still there. It's nice to know it is.
0: Definitely. Uh, And to start off the general questions, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching the show?
1: Well, sure. You know, most people did. Um, And I remember I would, you know, after school, go home, do my homework, of course, right? And then I'd put on the TV and watch Scooby-Doo mystery cartoons because, you know, that's what was on. So that's what I watched.
0: And do you have a favorite personal memory related to Scooby-Doo, whether watching or writing?
1: Um, certainly not watching, you know, just watching the cartoons when I was a kid, you know, really was uh, was you know its own little thing. But my whole experience writing uh, the Scooby-Doo chapter books was just a great adventure for me and uh, certainly not whatever I was expecting I'd find myself doing at any point in my life. But it was the whole the whole thing of it was just a great, great, great adventure.
0: How did you come to work on the Scooby-Doo chapter books?
1: Um, you know, it's, it's an example of one of those things where a, a door somehow opens a, uh, a friend of my wife's and mine was an editor at Scholastic and, uh, she and I had conversations, you know, over the course of time, oh, wouldn't it be great to write something? And we'd bounce around ideas and say, Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then one day I'm having dinner and she, she calls me and said that Scholastic had just, um, licensed the characters from warner brothers at warner brothers wanted to create a whole bunch of books for the scooby-doo characters and she asked me a question that you know you don't hear every day hey would you like to try to write a scooby-doo mystery and i'm thinking sure who wouldn't right so you know sent me a couple of books these uh scooby-doo resource character guides sort of the official i guess hanna-barbera scooby-doo bible and kind of read through them to reacquaint myself and then i got to work and wrote Wrote my first one, Scooby-Doo and the Haunted Castle, in 1998. And um, Scholastic liked it enough that they said, all right, well, would you do another one for us? So I did a second one. And and what they don't tell you, Alexa, is that the second book is always harder than the first book. Because the first book, you don't know what you're doing. So you're just going to write and say, all right, this sounds like it could work. But the second book is like, oh, what did I do the first time? And you try to recreate it, and you get inside your own head. But uh, I, I, I I carried through and, and managed to, to crank that one out, Scooby-Doo. Uh, what was the second book now? I think it was The Mummy's Curse. And uh, and then they asked for a couple more, and then off to the races we went.
0: Had you ever thought about being a writer before you got that opportunity?
1: Uh, not as a profession slash career thing to do with my time, no. you know I've always enjoyed writing, and I remember, you know, I do remember in school that creative writing – um, assignments were always great for me. Um, I always loved words and I grew up in a house where, you know, wordplay was, was appreciated and my grandfather would tell stories and my father would tell stories and jokes and things like that. So I, I, I words and putting things together was always, was always appealing to me. And I did, uh, I think when I was in fourth or maybe it was fourth grade, a uh, third grade, a friend and I in elementary school, we started a a short story writing business where we would sell like a mystery or a, or an adventure story for like 25 cents. So we did some stories on demand that way. And um, it's, it was always a part of who I was growing up, just loved writing. And then this opportunity came. So there you go.
0: Awesome. And can you maybe describe a little bit more what it was like writing that very first one?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, well, first of all, it was a long time ago. It was 1998 um, when I was doing it. And the um, What I realized what I needed to do was take what, you know, this visual medium, this cartoon series, and, um, and try to put it into a story in a way that made sense. Now, these were um, called chapter books. So, you know, in in children's publishing, you have, you know, picture books, and then, you know, early readers, and then you have these things called uh, chapter books, which is for, you know, typically a second, third, fourth grade reading audience, then you have your middle grade books, and then, you know, you go up to young adult, things like that. So in writing these chapter books, the idea was it was have to follow a certain formula. It was going to be nine chapters and it was going to be a certain length. And so what I needed to do was sort of crack the code of a Scooby-Doo cartoon. And so I remember watching a few, you know, getting a, I don't know whether it was a videotape, I might be dating myself, but, you know, watching a few Scooby-Doo cartoons and and realizing, all right, so here's the progression. And what I figured out how to do was take this cartoon structure and put it into a a nine chapter structure where a gang arrives at a setting and they meet a few characters who will become suspects and then a monster shows up to create a mystery and then they start looking for clues which relate back to the characters then they set a trap which goes go fluey but scooby still manages somehow to capture the monster rip off the mask and look it's old man with spoon um so it was a process of figuring out how do i apply you know this visual thing to a to a more structured Written process.
0: What was it like to try and translate those iconic cartoon characters into a literary format?
1: Um, It was surprisingly um, much easier than I thought it was going to be. Because once I figured out how to structure the story, then it was just a matter of bringing the characters into it. Um, And you know, each of the characters has his, you know, has his personality traits, has the whether it's the catchphrases, the way they the way they dress. Um, So having the personalities already established was really, really helpful for me. And so essentially what I started doing with that first one, and then all the way through, it was essentially, all right, gang, we're going to a haunted house and we're going to meet these three people go. And I'm kind of like playing it out in my mind, even though I had an outline on the page. um, I'm really found myself just sort of in my mind, watching these characters interact and just sort of, taking dictation, if you will, just kind of recording what I'm watching unfold in my mind with these characters. And certainly the more books I wrote, um, the much uh, easier it became and and uh, to identify with them and really just get their voices going and, and all that stuff.
0: And within that nine chapter structure, did you have a specific writing process for them at all?
1: Um, not really. It was really a matter of, I guess, the for all of the all of the books I wrote, it was pretty straightforward. It was a brainstorming time where, okay, I need to identify a monster and a setting, um, like where where could I go? Where, what, how exciting could this be? What could this creature be? And then what is this creature gonna do? And then figure out, well, who else would be in this place? And what are their qualities, characteristics? What are their jobs? Um, so these are the things that lead to creating clues to match them back to the suspect. So it was really a process of brainstorming. And then taking my nine chapters and knowing what happens in each chapter, what are the key points that's going to happen, what's the trap going to look like, how's it going to fall apart, then how's Scooby going to capture them in the end anyway, um, and coming up with the character names and things like that. So it was really figuring out, brainstorm, outline, start writing, which, you know, as anyone who writes will tell you, is mostly about rewriting anyway, but um, it was just a matter of sitting down and just, like I said before, going along for the ride.
0: And were you tasked with coming up with the ideas for the monsters and everything on your own? Or did Scholastic ever give you any ideas as to what to include?
1: No, I was actually really lucky. Um, They gave me essentially free reign. You know, the Scooby characters were established, but the settings and the creatures and everything that happened in the stories I was creating um, and what they what they would do which I, I thought was really quite interesting is even though a book, I you know would have a creeper in it or have a robot in it, they would use sometimes the animation art. So, you know, the Scooby-Doo, you know, um, cartoon that has the creeper in it, they use that creeper for my book, Scooby-Doo and the Carnival Creeper. Now that's not what I was picturing, but that was the the artwork they decided to use so sometimes there was carryover between the the cartoons and my stories even though all of my stories themselves were original
0: oh that's super interesting yeah are you a mystery fan yourself was it at all difficult trying to get into the mindset of adding clues and revealing who's the villain in the end uh, not really. I,
1: I I enjoy mysteries. You know, I, I, I remember reading a lot of Encyclopedia Brown when I was in elementary school. That was one of my favorite series to write. So uh, to read. So I think I had that in me and I was in college. I took a whole course on the It, not realizing it was realizing it was, you know, I guess, going to be setting me up for this kind of work. Um, so I, I have enjoyed mysteries. I haven't I don't read them much anymore. Um, but uh, there was also sort of a logic element to it. Um, when you think about, OK, and um, like these logic puzzles you would do where you have, you know, 15 people are at a dinner party and he can't sit next to them and they can't sit next to that. And they're the vegetarian and they eat this. And so, you know, you figure out you have three you have three suspects and you have to figure out how you get the clues to lead to a solution. So you have three suspects. You need to have three clues, one for each of them to say, oh, these are my suspects. And then you have two clues, which eliminates one. Then you have one clue left. So only one person is left. So that's how the gang's going to solve the mystery. So, in addition to an appreciation for you know mysteries themselves, it was also like a logic puzzle.
0: Did you ever run into any challenges writing the Scooby stories?
1: Um, yeah, there were there, there were plenty of times that you know I would end up banging my head against the desk because I would write myself into a corner. Um, you know, I was in. Fully in control of all aspects of the story, so it's not like the difficulties were anything but my own creation. But you know, I'd come up with a place, and I'd come up with a monster and the mystery, and and sometimes I'd find myself it just wasn't working out. Like this isn't fun, or uh, it's just something wasn't clicking about it. So you know, every once in a while it would be a matter of if I've written three chapters already, just kind of starting over again. It's like, oh well, no, I got to rewind and erase this, and let's let's start fresh, and maybe we'll take it in a different direction. And um, other times it just kind of flowed, like it would come down and I would just sit and find myself writing, you know, half the book in one sitting. Um, so I, I had varied experiences with them.
0: And what is it like as an adult to try and get into the mindset of writing a story for second, third, fourth grade?
1: Oh, it was so easy. <laughs> so easy. I was, uh, I was at a writing conference once years ago and, uh, I was happy to be sitting at a table, with some people, and one of them happened to be, I think, a literary agent. And he said, oh, um. Introduce myself and he says uh what's your mental age and he said excuse me what's your mental age like inside what do you feel like and I realized huh yeah i think i feel like a 10 year old and so i realized like i had a sensibility you know i was able to switch gears into that when i was writing these stories um that made it easy for me to i guess relate to to a young reader and uh sort of have fun with it that way. Like I, I never got hung up on the fact that uh, here I am a grown up writing these children's cartoons, but rather it was, you know, I'm a kid at heart. And so it was, it was kind of easy.
0: And you wrote quite a number of these books, I think between 45 and 50 of them in total. Was it ever difficult to come up with ideas?
1: Um, you know, it was only difficult because I sometimes would make it difficult for myself, but you know, I'm sitting brainstorming monsters. You know, you can have 45 monsters on a piece of paper that you just make up. And I'm not talking, you know, Frankenstein, mummy, Wolfman. I'm talking about, oh, you know, you know, you kind of nearing the edge of things. I was like, oh, I have a stapler monster. Oh, I have a popcorn monster. Oh, I have a Q-tip monster. Like, because everything can become some kind of a scary thing. So, you know, that that's when it would, you know, you, when you feel like you're <laughs> you're going too far in one direction. Um, but uh, it was it was it was pretty easy all 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 you know by and large
0: do you have a favorite character of the gang to write for
1: well in terms of a favorite it's not like i like one better um and uh, i used to do school visits and you know do writing workshops with kids in elementary schools and they'd always ask the question and say who do you think who do you think and and the way i would explain it to them was um i really like all the characters but there is one who i think came the easiest to me to write the one who i think i identified most closely with Um, And that was Shaggy Um, and partially because I'm always hungry like him. Um, And uh, I don't know, there was just some things about him that for me was just I identified with. And it was always when I was writing Shaggy and Scooby scenes, it was just uh, like I was there with Scooby, basically. So it was uh, those were great, great fun for me to write.
0: Um, And maybe not a favorite, but after all these years out of the books you wrote, is there one that still sticks in your mind? um
1: uh well that's that's a harder question to answer um you know there were there were some that were easier to write and some that were harder to write for sure um some had some characters that like some character names still resonate with me like my i think was my second book i created this character this movie producer called raleigh bluster and i just love that name i just i just thought that was such a great character name so i remember that I would have book, The Baseball Boogeyman, which for some reason stands out. And The Rock and Roll Ghost stands out to me for some reason. Oh, The Vicious Viking. That stands out because that was a book I um, actually worked on with a, um, a fifth grade class at a local elementary school. And so when I was doing one of my writing sessions together, we brainstormed it. And I thought it was such a good idea that I actually it was the only time I ever did this where um, I took some of their ideas and, and turned them into the Scooby-Doo book. So there are there are several that, you know, still stand out in my mind. Um, one, the summer camp Cyclops, because, you know, I work at a summer camp, and that was always special to me, too. So there were a few that have, some, uh, have a little deeper meaning, I guess.
0: And after you would finish writing, can you speak at all to what would happen after you sent it in and before it got published?
1: Yeah, so... Um, the way the process worked was I would, you know, brainstorm my idea and, and flesh it out a little bit, get approval from my editor at Scholastic. And then I, I would write the story and um, I would submit the finished manuscript. And then my editor would, you know, do a first pass and, you know, make some edits here and there. And if, there anything, if there's anything that needed, I needed to look at again, then it would be sent back to me and I would I would do a second pass at it. Um, and I think I, I would say that the the more i was doing them the less that was happening i think early on there was a lot more hands-on editorial work needed to be done but and once i hit the groove and got into the rhythm of things that i feel like there was less of that going on and once i sent them the idea the the, the initial concept and that got approved then they would uh send that information over to the um art studio and i believe they outsourced the artwork for this um, to some, you know, places that do a lot of their animation. Um, I'm sorry, illustrations. And then once the fa- manuscript was finished, the editor would flag, "Oh, these are the pictures we want," and you know, they would take care of the art direction and send it off to the you know, illustration studio to get all of the spot artwork. And and I would sometimes get to see, you know, a mock-up of the of the cover, but I wouldn't see the book with all of its illustrations and everything until it was actually published. Um, and it was probably i don't know I would say an eight to ten month window from when I would finish the start manuscript until it would be published. That was sort of I think the window we were working with um with the publication so it was always a great treat whenever you know the box would come from Scholastic and I'd open up and I'd see oh look at what the look what they did to my my words and it's it was an interesting thing to think that you know I'm picturing something in my mind with my words and I would look at their illustrations and, wow, they got that spot on. Or sometimes I'd think, oh, man, I wish I was clearer with my words because that's a great illustration. But it wasn't what I was thinking. But how cool that they came up with something else. So it was always, a, a, I guess, an exciting part of the process.
0: And how long would it typically be before you finished one and got an assignment for another one?
1: Um Well, typically the way it was working is I'd get a contract and it would be for, you know, six books. It would be like a six book contract with um, deadlines set up, you know, over the course of, I don't know, six to six to ten months. So I I guess I'd be it would I sort of train myself because at the beginning they want to get a lot of volume. I was probably turning around a manuscript from soup to nuts. I don't know. Every three to four weeks, when I first started, um, and then yeah, to just to get the pipeline going. But I, on average, I was I was probably writing um, about six books a year, I guess.
0: And what is it like to be able to get that box and be able to see your words come to life?
1: Oh, uh, it's uh, it's an incredible feeling. It really is. Um, it's it's been a very long time since it's happened, but I I, I do remember you know there's like a you know you're opening a birthday present kind of feeling like you know what's inside because it's something you asked for but you, to getting it in your hands and and seeing what it actually is um it's incredible it's an incredible thing to see you know the collaboration um and 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 what it can create and just looking at looking at these words on the page like oh my gosh i i was sitting in my basement typing this story now look at it it's a thing it's a book it's out there in the world it you know makes it very very real um and yeah it's a it's a it's an exquisite wonderful feeling
0: and do you still have copies of the books that you had written?
1: oh yes, i do um i as part of my you know part of my contract, I would get you know like a few copies of every book so i I put most of them away, so I have them in storage so you know I have them to hand down to you know grandchildren and things like that but i have a in my office I have a bookshelf with um with one or two copies of all of my books and uh some of the Scoobies were translated into Spanish and into French and and uh other books I wrote for Scholastic and other publishers too. So yeah, I have I've got them around. Nice 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 reminder of that chapter, literally that chapter of my life.
0: Definitely. Um and what is it like to be able to create stories for characters that you had grown up watching?
1: It was a it was a privilege. It and it was a treat. Um it really really was. Um It was, it was just great. You know, I feel like to be entrusted with that, you know, I, I like to believe that, you know, Warner Brothers who owns the characters at the time, you know, they entrusted, you know, Scholastic, you know, the premier children's publishing house at the time, you know, with, with this project and believing that they would find people who would, who would treat these characters respectfully and, and in the spirit with which they were created. And I like to feel I did that. I really tried very hard to, to honor the integrity of what the characters were. And I, I became very protective of them. And, you know, whenever I would talk to kids about them and they would ask questions and I would correct, no, 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 Scooby is this, he's not that. And, you know, making sure people understood that these five original characters really, you know, were quite special and, and worthy of, of, of honoring appropriately.
0: And I wanted to talk about the school visits a little bit more. What was that like?
1: Um, oh, that was great. So I... In addition to loving to write, I, I, you know, I've I've always loved working with kids, um, and uh, and this gave me an opportunity to um, take something I love doing, which is writing, and working with kids, something else I really enjoyed. And um, what I did was create a series of writing workshops and assembly programs. The goal, really simply, was to get kids excited about writing and to prove to them. That there's no magic formula. You didn't need to be a rocket scientist. That all you need is is an imagination and how to organize your ideas, and you can create anything. And so, I shared with them my formula for writing Scooby Doo mysteries. And I'd say, all right, let's brainstorm a setting. Where can the gang go? Because when you have a story, you have to have the setting. Otherwise, nothing else can happen, right? And you want to know who your heroes are, and you want to know who your your villain is. And we brainstorm monsters. And so, what can the monster do with this setting? And And in the course of a 60 minute assembly, you know, me and, you know, 300 kids would come up with an idea for a Scooby-Doo mystery story that they then could then run back to their classrooms and write or could inspire them to use their imaginations in other ways. So for me, being able to take something concrete, something familiar that they knew, which was these characters of Scooby-Doo and show them really there's no mystery, (laughs) pardon the pun, to writing a story that all it takes is some imagination, a good sense of organization and you put everything together, and you can create amazing things of your own. So it for me, it was so fulfilling to be able to add that extra level to to the work i was I was creating um in the books, to use it as a tool to inspire uh, inspire children all over the United
0: States. And did you find that kids were super interested and receptive to learning about creative writing?
1: Super interested because I, I could have taught them math with Scooby-Doo. I could have taught them social studies or physics with Scooby-Doo. You know, it wasn't about the topic. It was about their relationship with these characters. Um, It happened to be creative writing that I was teaching them. And it brought it to life for them. It brought it to life for them in a way that, you know, they wouldn't have seen otherwise. And I, I always was very careful to emphasize that you're learning this in your classrooms from your teachers. This is no mystery. This is no secret. It's there. But here's a different way of looking at it so that. My goal was to reinforce what the teachers were teaching because I was using terminology that kids were learning about stories, you know, whether it's hero, villain, protagonist, antagonist, right, um, resolution, denouement, whatever the words are they're, u- they're using to study story writing. I'm using them with a Scooby-Doo mystery and they see that, oh, okay, yeah, how cool is that?
0: Going into those workshops, did you have kids that had already read your Scooby stories? Um
1: Many of them had. Uh, They all knew the characters, but not all of them had read the books. Um, And at the time, you know, the part of bringing an author into a school is it'd be an opportunity for an author to sell their books. And, you know, for the most part, when authors would do that, you know, it was sort of um, what's the word? You know, it was part of their business model. Right. Because they got royalties from their books. But I never got royalties. The Scooby-Doo characters were owned by owned by Warner Brothers. And so Scholastic licensed those characters from Warner Brothers, and they hired me as a contract writer to write these stories. So I didn't own them. I had no ownership. I wasn't getting royalties from selling my books. I was getting kids reading for selling my books. And that's that's what I found I was happening. I'd be getting letters from from kids of course who love Scooby Doo books want to write me books write me letters but I'd get letters from teachers I'd get letters from parents saying hey your books are great because they're getting these kids who wouldn't normally read to pick up a book um, people who would struggle people who were intimidated whatever their whatever the issues were kids were reading because I made the characters accessible and brought brought the idea of reading to life for them
0: And what do you think it is about having that familiar character that gets kids interested in reading?
1: Um, Well, I think it's comfort. I think it's spending time with a friend and, you know, what's great about, you know, Scooby and the gang is the values of what they represent and, you know, lovable characters. Scooby is a lovable character who's very childlike right in his innocence, wants to help out, kind of be willful sometimes, loves his snacks. Um, I think every character kids can relate to in some fashion and to see this team of friends who ha- always have each other's backs who are traveling together. I think that, you know, it brings, uh, like I said, a tremendous source of comfort to a reader like, oh, I know them. I can spend some time with them. Let's see what this new adventure is going to be. And, and I think that goes a long way that, you know, why do people love the Harry Potter books? Yeah, they're incredibly well written, sure. But these are people that kids wanted to spend time with. And if you look at any successful series, it's because there's a connection kids see themselves they can picture themselves either being friends with that hero or or being that hero and i think kids have that with scooby-doo and the gang
0: uh and did you have young kids at the time did were they reading your books
1: um i did have young kids i i when i started writing my oldest daughter was i probably eight months old or something um, and i wrote the books from 98 to 2007. so in that time um You know, we had a second child, and so they were aware, then dad's writing Scooby-Doo books, and it's like, you know, the child of of any parents, like, oh, that's their job, big deal, right? I mean, to their friends, it was special, and I go to their school to, you know, do writing programs and things, but uh, they didn't read many of my books. I bet you they read some of them, Um, but uh, no, Scooby-Doo isn't for everyone either. I'll be honest with you, you know, right. Not everyone is going to pick up a Scooby-Doo book. So, and that was fine too. There was never a requirement. It wasn't like, you must read daddy's books tonight, or we're (laughs) going to have story time with daddy's books tonight. And I would make up my own stories to tell them at bedtime. So I think, uh, I think they were quite satisfied with that.
0: Uh, and you had actually had a dog named Scooby as well. Is that right?
1: That is true. And, and here's the here. So here's the irony of everything. Um, I, um, uh, my wife and I bought our first house that had a fence in the backyard. I grew up with a dog. Um, my wife had a dog. It's like, I want to get a dog. So, uh, we go to, I go to the shelter and I find this dog, um, and starts barking at me. And I'm like, all right, this dog's talking to me. So I get this dog, we bring him home. And we started to name him Scooby, which was great. It was a cute name. I right? to we name our dog Scooby. Um, and this was in, uh, 1996. Here's the, here's the kicker. I didn't start writing the books until 1998. So I had a dog named Scooby two years before I started writing the books about another dog named Scooby. That's crazy, right? And, that and is what, amazing. And I realized at that point I should have named my dog Harry Potter because that would have been a really good idea.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Um. And why do you think that a cartoon like Scooby-Doo has lasted for so long now over 50 years?
1: Um. I, I think it goes back to the to the the wholesomeness and the simplicity of the characters. Um, you know, there's no sarcasm, there's no snark, there's no irony. These are, you know, high school, these are teenagers who like being together, who help people out. Um, I just I I think it's as simple as that. I think for older people they represent a much simpler time of you know of television and, and and characters and cartoons, and I think for for younger people today they represent you know something simple and something sweet and sincere, and I'll use that word that I used earlier, comforting. It's like yeah, I can hang out with these people. There's just something nice about them. I want to spend time with them. I think it's I think it's as simple as that.
0: I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all? Whether any fun stories from writing the books or anything else?
1: Um, I uh, gee, I, that that's a really good question. I I I probably don't have anything I'd want to add. I I really, like I said, I really considered it a privilege, and you know, while I did have the opportunity to write other other cartoon stuff, there was a a, a um a Disney Channel or. A bunch of characters, a Dragon Booster series I worked on. I did have the privilege to write a few SpongeBob SquarePants books, which for me were like, oh my gosh, I was writing those while I was doing Scooby. And it was like taking a vacation, but it was great because I love those characters too. And, you know, I had the you know, the opportunity to really, really stretch my imagination through this whole process. And and being able to work with students was really, really rewarding too. That was really um, a tremendous part of uh, of the joy I got from what I was doing when I was writing. But to sit and spend time with people in your head i know to some people it may sound like you're crazy but just to sit in a room and and watch people watch these characters dance around and interact and have adventures and just write it all down as it's happening like you're just taking dictation it's a, it's an incredible feeling and uh, for anyone out there who's listening if you're interested in writing pick it just just do it just sit down just try it and 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 see see where it takes you cuz opportunities like with me present themselves when you least expect it.
0: Definitely. Um, and just before we end here, I always like to give the opportunity if there's anything you want to promote or social media channels or websites where people might be able to follow what you're up to.
1: Oh, that's really kind. You know, I'm I'm not very present on social media these days. Um, in my job, I'm I'm a summer camp director of a camp called Eisner Camp in, in, in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is a great place. And um, that's what fills fills my days and 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 many of my evenings as well, and certainly my summers. And um, I'm privileged to have the opportunity to to work there um, and and continue to impact you know children. And that's really something that's really really special to me. So um, I don't have you can't follow me because I'm not really doing anything interesting right now, and uh, I'm certainly not posting too much. But um, who knows? Who knows? Maybe the the muse will strike, and we'll we'll get a we'll get a new series going one of these days.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me again, James.
1: Uh, It was my pleasure, Alexa. Thank you again for, for for messaging me, and I'm 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 thrilled to thrilled to be part of this podcast.
0: And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to James Gelsey for taking the time to chat with me. For more groovy content, be sure to check at Unmasked SD on Twitter at Podcast on Instagram or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo Podcast If you like this episode and want to hear more also make sure to check those social media channels or the website or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix Thanks for listening and keep an ear out for the next episode Scooby-Dooby-Doo!